Welcome to Radical Simple Living, episode 33. Um, gosh, 33 episodes already. How can that be? Having so much fun doing it that uh, I hope you're enjoying listening to them. Today I'm going to be talking about rewilding. And I do this with a degree of trepidation because I know that that word is going to get one of three responses. Uh, first response is those of you who don't really know what rewilding is, and I'm taking a chance that uh, you're going to listen to it anyway and find out more, so that's easily dealt with. The second group of people are those who think rewilding is a really good idea, but it's not something I have anything to do with. Rewilding is for landowners to make a capital investment in rewilding some of their land and finding different ways to make money other than the conventional ways they may have been using it. Um, the third group of people are those who think rewilding is a bit crazy. And um, I, I hope you listen to whichever of those three groups you belong to. I hope you, of course, there is a fourth group, which is people that are actually doing rewilding already. I, I apologise for missing you out. You could probably tell me a few things. Now, before we start on that main body of things, I just want to talk a little bit about how green you are. Um, you won't find the answer by looking in the mirror. You will find the answer by looking deep into yourself, because there are there are different levels of being green. Uh, one of those levels is dark green. Now, if you're a dark green person, this, by the way, is, is green with a with a lowercase g. It doesn't necessarily relate to any political party. It simply relates to how radical you are prepared to be in changing your life to bring around environmental change. And somebody who is dark green is likely to almost do anything to push forward a green agenda and to make sure that their own lives reflect what they believe in. So they may be somebody like me who lives in the woods and, and doesn't own a car and tries to do their best at growing their own vegetables and maintaining the natural environment around me. But there are other people that are even further dark green than me. Uh, and some of these people are entirely off-grid and some of these people don't even have access to the internet. I know for many years I, I, I was friends with a, a woman on Facebook who was very, very off-grid and they had a, a, a little generator for doing the internet. And after three or four years, she decided even that was too much and gave up that. So I hope she's still doing well out there in the in the wildlands of, of rural Tennessee and is enjoying her life. Um, so dark green people are prepared to do anything, to move any mountain. They're, they can be very vocal about their green views and they will do anything. And they keep their eye on all kinds of developments that are happening and try and moderate their behaviour accordingly. So those are dark green people. You may be dark green yourself. Then we have light green people. Now light green people are usually living a fairly conventional lifestyle but they want to adapt their lifestyle so it can be as green as possible. They want to recycle, they want to grow their own food, 
They want to look at their carbon footprint in terms of the transportation solutions that they choose. They may be working hard in local environmental groups to protect the environment. At the same time as doing this, they may be holding down a job and they may be driving a car and they may be doing all sorts of things which a dark green person may not do. Now, I personally don't care if you're dark green or light green because I believe that if you care anything about the environment and if you're doing any work to help protect the environment, then you and I are allies and we're allies with everyone else on the planet who cares about our planet enough to make changes to their life. And as to the depth of those changes and the specifics of those changes, I'm quite prepared to work with people that are prepared to do something. It's better to do something than to do nothing. So even if you feel that you can't do much to help the environment, as long as you're doing something, that's good. Now, the last group I'd like to talk about may be new to you, and certainly they're developed as a political force in some parts of the world, but they're called teal. And you'll know teal, it's that rather nice colour that is sort of halfway between blue and green, but is more green than blue. If you go more blue, you get sort of turquoise, cyan colour. But if you're teal, you're, you're sort of blue, a green with a bluish tint. Now... People who are teal may actually be quite conservative people. They may not be radical. They may not be part of any great environmental movement. But they are worried by the environment. They're worried by the changes. They're worried by global warming and they want to do something. So they're prepared to make some changes to their lifestyle in order to accommodate the environment and they may well be likely to make some changes to their purchasing in order to become more green. And they're likely to be putting a little bit of pressure on their, the political parties that they support to adopt more green policies. Now, again, I don't care about that. I do think that anyone that cares about the environment is better than somebody that doesn't care about the environment. So I'm quite happy to work with anybody if they're dark green, light green, teal or if they're just dipping their toe into the whole environmental debate and just starting to make some changes in their lifestyle. You may be one of those people, I don't know, you may be two of those people if you're listening as a couple. I don't care, just keep at it, just keep working on looking at how you can personally change the environment for the better. Look after what you have and make sure the options you choose are green options. And if that ends up with you living up a tree somewhere in a forest, well, you know, that's not for everybody. But if it goes that far, that's great. If it just means that you're going to be a little bit more forceful about environmental issues when it comes to uh, your local, your friends, your neighbours, your local government, then that's wonderful too. Okay. Let's try and define what rewilding means and what you personally can do. Now, rewilding has been around, I guess, for about 20 years as an idea, although before that, um, sort of little bits of it existed in different places. 
I know I've got some books that date from the late 1970s which are called Wildlife Gardening or How to Make Your Garden More Wild or Woodland Gardening. And all of these were touching on the idea that in order to have a garden, you don't actually need to exclude all wildlife. Now, as uh, some badgers dug up all my peas last night, you you, you know, I, I this, this is the thing. I don't want to exclude the badgers. I, I like them very much. But I, I do hope to discourage them from rooting up all my peas every time I replant them. So if you listen to this, badgers, please don't do it anymore. Um, okay, so wildlife gardening was a way of gardening, but at the same time keeping an eye on the wildlife that comes into your garden and making things friendly for them. Now, a lot of people will instantly say, all oh, bird feeders, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with bird feeders as long as you're doing it at the right time of year and you're feeding the birds with the things that aren't going to do them any damage. Bird feeders are fine. They might say, oh, I like to encourage hedgehogs. Yeah, that's good too. We all like hedgehogs. Um, uh, I don't have hedgehogs in my garden because of the badgers. They rarely coexist peacefully. One of them always loses out and it, it's nearly always the hedgehog, I'm afraid. Um, but if you are encouraging your wildlife to your garden, don't just think of the fluffy and feathery wildlife. Don't think of the wildlife that you can just take photographs of uh, and put up on Facebook and everybody will coo at. That's important. Those uh, vertebrates, the, uh, the mammals, the birds are important to encourage to use your garden. They were there first after all chances are. But it's also important to look at the not so nice things. It's also very important to look at reptiles and amphibians. Amphibians are at particular risk because almost every pesticide and insecticide that people have used for the last 60 years on land has been death for amphibians. If you take the trouble to research some common garden chemicals and you look for LD50 rates, and LD50, for those of you that don't know, is the uh, a concentration you have to get before 50% of the animals in an um, experiment die, you can't do LD50 tests with pesticides and herbicides on amphibians because they all die with very small amounts of these things. Even things that are said, oh, that's safe, and oh, you can use this here, or you can use this occasionally. You can't, because amphibians are very susceptible. And if you destroy all the amphibians in your local environment, you're destroying the reptiles and some of the birds and some of the mammals that feed on the amphibians. I know that some years here, I am invaded by thousands of little toadlets. Now, if they all grew up to be big toads, the southern Sweden would sink under the weight of them. They don't. They provide food for all kinds of birds and mammals and reptiles. So that's important too. We shouldn't be squeamish about this. We're talking about the natural environment. So if you dig up a, a, a spadeful of soil from your garden, what's living in the soil? You know, are there worms? Well, if there aren't, one of the things I would ask you to question is, are you using horse manure on your garden? Because it's quite common now for stables to use very powerful 
worming treatment for horses and this worming treatment gets through into the dung of the horses it's not broken down by composting so when you spread it on your garden thinking you're being environmentally friendly and um, using a natural manure you may in fact be spreading very powerful chemicals that are going to kill off the invertebrates in your garden so I tell you that because you need to think about it. I know that there are many horse owners that prefer to worm their horses with garlic and celery and all kinds of things like that. And if you do that, uh, that's wonderful. And obviously your manure is worth its weight in gold. But if it's from a stables that use um, a commercial worming product on their horses, then please don't spread that on your garden. It's not going to help anything. So we're talking about the whole environment and we're not just talking about our gardens when it comes to rewilding. We're talking about the environment around us and we're talking about the environment of the planet in total. Rewilding is something that needs to take place on a big scale. So what is it? Well, it's about trying to restore to some extent the environment that you live in to the way it would be if you weren't living there. So if you look out of your window at the moment and see a sprawling golf course or something like that, if that golf course was an oak woodland, then that would be rewilding it. That would be taking it back to what it would have been at some time in the past. Now, we understand, of course, even those of us that are dark green, that rewilding can't be complete. And rewilding can't be done everywhere. But we can make some steps towards trying to redress the balance. And what I plan to do today is to give you a few examples of how you can rewild in your garden. Or, even if you haven't got a garden, how you could be part of the rewilding process. Now it's time to mention a book here. If you really want to know what rewilding is all about, um, this podcast isn't going to help you that much because I've got a limited time. But there is a book, it's called Wilding, and it's by Isabella Tree. And it exists as a, as a, a paper copy, but you can also get an audio book of it, which she reads herself, or, or the one I've heard is of her reading it herself. I think it's available pretty worldwide now, and it is a earth-shattering read. What she tells you is how her and her partner, who inherited a farm in Sussex, have spent the last decade or so rewilding it. And they have done an incredible job and made a very valuable experiment and come up with incredible results about wildlife returning to an environment that had been intensively farmed for generations and it can be done now do read that book it's called wilding by isabella tree she has written other books about rewilding i haven't read all of those i'm afraid but i do know that one is such a good read and such an eye-opener uh, it will open your eyes as well i'm sure if you try it now 
you may be saying at this point I haven't got a farm in Sussex I can rewild I've got a small garden or maybe I've got no garden at all so let's talk about some first steps in rewilding that you can take now to do this you have to realize that the world you see around you wherever you live is very much a man-made world unless you live in the wilds of Alaska or unless you live in the middle of a rainforest somewhere chances are the environment you live in is not a natural one I live in the forests of southern Sweden but that's not a natural environment because a lot of the native trees have been got rid of because they were not of commercial use and those trees of commercial use either for firewood or for timber have been promoted so what we should be trying to do is increase biodiversity increasing the actual number of species that we have living in any environment we have control over and this is going to start with your lawn now i know the dark green advice might be to dig up your lawn and grow vegetables i've dug up most of my lawn for vegetables at the front of my house and i intend to do more and that's fine and that's good it's a lot more fun to be looking after vegetables on your front garden than it is to be growing grass i understand some of you that listen to this i know every week i i look at the world map that uh, my podcast publisher sends me of where people are listening i know i have listeners all over australia and south america and new zealand and canada and the states and europe and africa and asia all over the world i'm amazed at where people tune in and listen to this podcast and i'm very grateful to you um but not everybody is going to have the exact situation i'm talking about so you will have to do some research so when i'm talking about lawns i'm talking about the kind of thing that people in north america or europe have at the front of their house if you don't want to dig up your lawn could you please try and do these things don't try to eradicate weeds from your lawn if you have clover growing in your lawn leave it if you have dandelions growing in your lawn leave them if you have buttercups growing in your lawn leave them if you have daisies growing in your lawn leave them if you have plantains the little plants called plantains not the big ones growing in your lawn leave them if you leave these plants they will flower in between mows and they will produce a great number of pollinating insects to visit your garden take nectar move pollen generally have a good time in your garden if you have a pure grass garden that you keep cut regularly it is barren as far as wildlife is concerned so please be careful about that now to encourage these plants to flower because in order to spread through your lawn they've got to drop seed and they're not going to drop seed if every week you come along and run the mower over them and basically decapitate them stop them setting seed yes they might produce more flowers but you're going to do the same thing to those flowers so you may be helping the pollinators a little bit but you're not helping the plants and unless the plants get to reproduce the pollinators will eventually suffer 
So what I would say is try and increase the height of the of the cut on your lawn. If you're cutting very, very close, cut a bit higher. Leave it so the grass is a little bit longer and that some of these low-growing flowering plants get chance to grow. The next thing that you might like to consider doing is not cutting your grass that often. Again, if you want to, you can let it grow as a meadow, although you will need a scythe to cut it at the end. You can buy a scythe. I bought one when I moved here for about $75. And as Sweden has a reputation of being one of the most expensive places on earth, perhaps your country provides them a lot cheaper. I certainly hope so. But if you get a scythe and you let your grass grow into a meadow, you will, on a dry sunny day, put on a straw hat and go out and scythe your lawn. Yes, people will stop and stare. Yes, they will wonder why is he wearing that straw hat or why is she scything or they'll wonder all these things. You do need a straw hat. Keep the sun off your face when you're scything. You do need to sharpen your scythe regularly, but you can scythe it. And you can do that after the plants have dropped their seeds and that means you'll have even more flowers next year and you'll be doing an even better service to uh, those pollinators. If you don't want to grow a meadow, okay, I understand. But do try and let those wildflowers grow and do try to um, cut a bit higher so you're not decapitating them all the time and cut less often. OK, maybe your neighbours won't like it. Explain to your neighbours what they're doing. They already think you're weird anyway. If you explain what you're doing, they're just going to have their views confirmed. Don't, don't worry about it. You know, conventionality isn't what saving the planet is about respectability isn't worth a fig when it comes to saving the planet. A garden full of bees is worth all the respectability you have. Don't worry. Now, the second thing... Oh, by the way, I did say I was going to say some things that you can rewild even if you don't have a garden. If you don't have a garden and your children go to school, go on the PCA and try and encourage the school to leave its grass a bit longer. If you work somewhere and your the, the office or the factory that you work in has a lawn around it, try and see what influence you can put on people to leave that lawn longer or to turn it into meadow. We all have clout. We all have things we can do if we try and do them. And your employer or your school or your college or your hospital or your office block or whatever else you work, if they have a lawn try and encourage them to be greener and more rewilding in their approach to that lawn. Another way that you can rewild is by growing a tree. Now, the important thing about trees is that they should be a native species. You can't grow, if you live in Biggleswade or Chicago, please don't grow some tropical tree that you have to cover in I don't know, felt wrap or something every winter, so otherwise it will die, because it's not natural for your environment. There won't be insects that feed on that tree. There won't be birds to feed on the insects that aren't living in that tree. And so it might look interesting for a while. Chances are it's not going to thrive. 
it'll die eventually and then you'll go and buy another one. So instead of buying some sort of tropical or semi-tropical tree, if you live in the tropics, that's fine. If you don't, don't try and do it. Try and grow native trees. Now I'm going to talk for a minute to people that live in North America and Europe and the North of Asia. Can I put in a plea for one particular kind of tree here? And that tree is a hazel. And I say this for a very good reason that hazels, although they are the most useful of trees, don't have a lot of commercial uses. Very few uh, parts of the world commercially collect hazelnuts. Very few people use hazel wood and very few people use hazel for all the traditional uses that hazel was put to in the 19th century and before. But if you grow a hazel in your garden, you will attract more wildlife than you know. You will have insects living in it. You will have insects buzzing around it. You will have birds coming to feed on the nuts. You will have mammals coming and scurrying away with a nut in their mouth. You will look out your window at your hazel tree and you will get joy from it for decades. It will outlive you. Now, if your garden is small, you don't have to let the hazel grow big. The hazel is the most forgiving of trees. So if your hazel is getting a bit big, you can cut it off at the base if you like. You can do anything to it and it will re-sprout. And when it re-sprouts, it will grow lots of little hazel trees around it and you end up with a big hazel bush. So size is not a factor when it comes to the hazel. You can grow it anywhere and it will attract all kinds of wildlife. Now, if you're listening in a part of the world where the hazel is not a native tree, grow something else. Do some research locally. Ask some local um, experts what is the appropriate native tree for you to grow. Not only if your hazel produce nuts will you be planting one tree, but all those jays and, and, and mammals that come and steal your nuts will scurry away with them and bury them somewhere and you'll be planting thousands of hazelnuts and it'll all be due to you. And so that's really worth doing. Um, if you're going to plant hazelnuts yourself, you might know a piece of, of wasteland where you could plant hazel um, nuts as a bit of guerrilla gardening. I would encourage you to do that. It's really illegal, even though it might break the odd law or so. But if you, uh, I don't mean laws that are going to put you in prison, the local bylaws and regulations, you know, thou shalt not plant nuts on this piece of wasteland that nobody's doing anything with anyway. Those kind of regulations. If you do plant nuts, please remember this. So many people I've seen plant nuts in the sort of, organic material that's at the top of the soil the leaf mold the leaf litter and they pop a nut in there and think they've planted the nut you haven't it won't grow to plant a nut you have to dig through the top layer all the dead leaves all the leaf mold and you have to plant your nut in the mineral soil that lies beneath that's what squirrels do that's what many birds do like jays you've got to do the same if you plant a hazelnut in your garden, it will sprout, you will have a hazel tree, it will grow fast, you will be rewilding, even if you're doing it on a very small level. Now, you might want 
to go on and do other things. You might want to develop a forest garden. Um, I do forest gardening. It's a challenge, but it's wonderful. Um, I will talk more about that on a separate podcast, if I might. But can I talk just a little bit more about the pressure that you can bring to rewild, even if you haven't got a garden of your own? Sometimes builders acquire bits of land and want to build on it. And in most parts of the world, they have to go through some sort of process for planning permission. Well, if they're building on a part of the the, the the world that is a natural environment and that has wildlife living on it and you want to protect, you oppose that with every fibre you have and form a local group and do what you can. It's not nimbyism, it's protecting the environment. We've only got one environment. If we trash it with developments, it, it will be ruined. There's plenty of brown soil sites that can be redeveloped. There's plenty of inner city regions that can be developed. We've got to stop destroying woodland and places that have the potential for woodland from being destroyed. But if you fail and they're going to build there anyway, why not write to the developer and say, I would like a clause put in this that says that native trees should be planted on this site. So if you're going to build a development of 30 houses, that's fine. But let's have some native trees. Let's have some, if you're living in Northern Europe, North America, let's have some rowan. Rowan's a wonderful tree. It's a beautiful tree and the berries get spread everywhere by birds. Let's have hazel. Let's have horse chestnut. Let's have all of these native trees and let's put them in place. If your developer wants an end of all the objections and they want to pacify a few people and if they want to pretend that they're being wonderfully environmentally friendly, they might agree to that and it can get written into the planning permission and you can go back to it. If there are lawns around there, can you put in that the lawn should be left at a certain height and that there should be allowed to grow wildflowers in it or even that it should be grown as a meadow? And you know, Sometimes you'll get it through. Sometimes by putting pressure on those things, you'll be able to get something done. So even if you don't have a, a garden yourself, even if you don't own a farm yourself, you can, by pressure, put uh, your power to rewilding by encouraging planning, encouraging schools, hospitals and what have you to uh, to rewild on a, on a very small level, maybe. Now, um, all the way through this, I've said native trees and native plants. As a closing comment, please make sure it's native. But I, I do realise in saying that, that some parts of the world, nothing is native Anyway, I live in a part of the world that in the Ice Age was covered with ice. And so almost every species that grows here in southern Sweden has been introduced. We're coming close to the time of the year here where all the, the verges along the side of the roads here in Smallland become covered in thousands of lupins. Now, the lupin isn't a native plant of Sweden. I think I'm right in saying that lupins originally come from the um, northwest of the US and of the southwest of Canada. And they're sort of spread here. And because the climatic conditions here in Sweden are very similar to those, that's why they're here. Now, am I going to say, oh, am I going to be a purist and say, 
Lupins are not a native species, you must destroy them. No, I'm not. I'm going to be fairly selective and understand that it's not fixed what is a native species. And if species have been in your environment for hundreds of years, effectively they are now native. Um, so do that rationally, but try not to go for species that actually, you know, don't grow a field of Japanese knotweed or anything like that. Try and be very responsible about what you plant. And if you plant anything that's flowering, make sure, please, that those flowers are big, open flowers that pollinating insects can dive into and get covered in pollen. If you choose those flowering plants, some roses I'm thinking of here, that are sort of tightly bound up flowers that look like a cabbage or something, you can't get into them. If you can't get into them easily, pollinating insects are not going to get into them easily. So take care there, please. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, you may realise I could talk about this for hours, so I may come back and revisit. I'm certainly going to do a podcast on forest gardening in the near future. Thank you for joining me. Do spread the word, especially on social media. It's very helpful to me. Thank you.